0: Please open your Bibles to Psalm 32. And consider for a moment, if you will, this morning are you happy? How happy are you? Put it on a scale of 1 to 10. Where do you rank this morning? Have you discovered the secret to happiness? Out of curiosity, I did a Google search this week just for that the secret of happiness. Two things struck me right off the bat. Number one is the millions of hits that my search got. Lots of folks are asking that question. and The second thing that struck me is no one knows. (laughs) There are millions of suggestions, tons, tons of top ten lists. Do these ten things and you'll be a happy person. On a lot of those lists were hobbies. If you pick the right leisure time activity that you can sink lots of money into you'll be happy and I at least applaud the practical nature of that one because a lot of the others were like believe in yourself I don't even know what that means I wouldn't know how to go about doing that in order to be happy but I'm here to tell you this morning that I know the secret to happiness. And it makes me happy to share it with you this morning. We're spending our summer in the Psalms. We're seeking the little tagline there, seeking to find God in the middle of them, in the middle of all kinds of things, even in the midst of, this puts us in the middle of three weeks that we're looking at finding God in the middle of our sin. So the first clue there, your secret to happiness has something to do with repentance and with confession of sin. And that might make some of you want to automatically jump to thinking, well, maybe I'll try to find out what it means to believe in myself instead. Because that doesn't, it's not the most intuitive thing to seek happiness through repentance and the confession of sin but I want us to see the case that the Bible makes for it this morning. So if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 32, it's 11 verses, and they are the very words of God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked but the steadfastness but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May God bless the teaching, the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you come again this morning and help us. Help us to see that you want us to be happy. Help us to see that You have outlined the path for us to pursue and find that happiness. Help us to see how Jesus is the foundation for any and all of our happiness. Help us to see Him clearly in His beautiful Gospel as it's shown to us even in these verses in the middle of the Psalms. We ask for Your help. We expect it. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. So this psalm begins and ends with happiness. Verses 1 and 2 both begin with blessed. Verse 11 speaks of being glad, of rejoicing, shouting for joy. Happiness. Right? Now, a few of your hands just went up. Right? if not physically, at least in your mind, you were saying, now, wait a minute. Being blessed is not the same thing as happy. (sighs) All right, so what has happened is in an attempt to be oh so spiritual, someone came along and said at one point, it's not a good thing for Christians to be happy. People might get the wrong idea. We'll be blessed instead. Which is just a label that we paste over our unhappiness in an attempt to feel holy and righteous about it. About the fact that we're actually somewhat miserable. Now, I'm not going to waste your time with a word study this morning trying to prove it to you. But the simplest, best translation definition understanding of the word used here is happy and there doesn't have to be anything superficial about being happy it can be this deep-seated contented satisfied which we sang about earlier joy-filled gladness That's the big point of the psalm. That's why the psalm begins and ends like it does with happiness. The psalm wants to help us answer the question, how can I be truly happy? There's an outline in your worship folder to help you follow along. First off, we're going to look at the obstacle to our happiness. We're going to look at some dead ends that don't lead to happiness. The proper path that does. A warning along the way. And we're even going to talk about how not just to be a little bit happy, but to be a whole lot happy, increasing in happiness. Starting number one with the obstacle. God created us to be happy. That was his intention. But that is not the automatic experience that we have because of the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled. And they threw a huge obstacle, both in their way and in our way, of experiencing happiness. The psalmist uses four words in the first two verses to describe our obstacle. And there's lots of overlap in the meaning of these verbs. And I want to give you a little bit of the nuance, but here's here's the thing. It's not so important that we are able to differentiate these four words and see all their differences. What we ought to be able to see is the big picture that they all paint together all right so collectively these four words give us a a nice robust picture of what we're talking about the first one is transgression which has to do with rebellion it has to do with a a willful deviation from God's plan the second one is sin which is a technical word and it, it literally means missing the mark right you didn't hit the standard The third one, iniquity, gets to where the guilt is involved. Um, the, The notion, and this is important, that our problem isn't just sins. It's not, ooh, there's a sin that I did. Ooh, there's a sin that I did. It's that we're sinful. Right? As people, we are people who sin. We're full of sin. The fourth one, deceit. We won't even be honest about our situation, right? And it's that last one that really might be the most important. Because I think a lot of well-intentioned Christians would, would look at this problem of happiness or the lack thereof, and they would say, I see what I need to do to be happy. I need to stop sinning. If I just obey more, I'll be happier. Now, certainly, there is an element of truth there. Okay? There's an element of truth there because God's law and instruction was designed and given to us with our good and our flourishing in mind. But, if that's the nature of your pursuit, right? if, if that's your paradigm for living is that every morning you wake up and you say, all right, I'm going to sin a little bit less today. Man, I'm going to try to just obey like crazy today. That ultimately ends up being toxic. For multiple reasons, I'm just going to give you two. Number one, it makes you And your effort's the center of everything. Right? Your focus is zeroed in on your ability, on your performance, on your failing to perform. Even if you put the little disclaimer, the little holy, righteous disclaimer on the end of it, say, oh, I'm trying really hard, but of course it's by the Holy Spirit's power. Right? Even if you put the little disclaimer, the little asterisk at the end, it's all about you. So that's the first problem. The second problem, if this is your focus, if this is your agenda, I'm going to sin less and I'm going to obey more, you can't not compare yourself to everyone around you. Right? If, if that is your MO, if that's the way that you're seeking to live life, you're constantly looking to the right and to the left of you. How am I measuring up? Are they doing better than me? Am I outdoing this person? It's human nature. You cannot avoid it. And I've mentioned it to you several times. That's going to lead to one of two places. Either arrogance, if you think you're doing pretty good, or deep, deep depression, if you realize that you're not. That is no path to happiness whatsoever. That's a a hamster wheel of exhaustion if that's what you are pursuing. No one ever got happier by trying to sin less. Okay? So the obstacle to our happiness is not that we sin, right? So if you've already, you're taking notes, and you've already put sin as the obstacle to happiness, right? In front of that, put unconfessed, right? Sin isn't the obstacle to our happiness. We've all got it. The obstacle to our happiness is unconfessed sin. We're not honest about our sins. We we, we don't get real with God about the true nature of things. Because if you notice, the psalmist isn't talking about frequency of sin. Blessed is the one who doesn't sin as much today as he did yesterday. No. Are we being honest with God? Or do we lie to ourselves about our sinfulness? And unfortunately, being honest with God is not the default. It's not how we're naturally bent. Very often, talking to God honestly about our sin is a last resort that we might eventually get to. We most often pursue dead ends all right so point number two on your outline look at verse two blessed is the man into this verse in whose spirit there is no deceit see we lie to ourselves we make excuses it's not really that bad and you know what it's not really my fault either Right? It's this other person, uh, and what they did contributed, and it, it made me end up doing what... And this is not new. Calvin, 500 years ago, said men are accustomed to unburden themselves by transferring their guilt or tracing it to other people. Right, We blame shift all the time. That's one of the ways that we lie to ourselves. See, what we're really trying to do with our sin is cover it up. Verse 5, in getting it part of the solution, shows us a big part of the problem. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. But see, that's our base instinct is to cover, right? We feel exposed. We know deep down that we've screwed up, and we've got to do something to feel less exposed. We've got to find some fig leaves, if you will. And we do it in lots of different ways. A very frequent way is that if I can point out someone else's failure, I won't feel as exposed about mine. Or at least I won't feel as alone in my failure. So, hmm, let me look around and see. How can I make myself feel better? Or maybe I can just pile up some some good deeds that outweigh this bad thing that I've done. Maybe I can bury my transgression under a mountain or at least a small hill of good works. What do you find yourself doing to make up for the wrongs that you've done. Is that your thought process at times? Man, I really blew it over here. I'm going to get to work over here. That's the first thing that I want you to consider. And then a second question to go along with it. Do you find that makes you happier? course you don't. According to God's word, it won't work. Perhaps the worst dead end of all we see in verse 3, David kept silent about his sin. Now, sometimes in Scripture, silence is a good thing, right? Not speaking is often a very wise move. But not here. Because silence here is to ignore. It's to deny. It's ultimately to become callous about. Indifferent, unfeeling, unfazed. Yeah, maybe it used to be a big deal. It used to bother me, but you know, at each additional time, it gets a little easier to just uh, quiet that voice in the back of my mind heart becomes a little harder none of these dead ends leads anywhere and God would be just he would be righteous if he left us there at the end of those dead ends allowing us to get exactly what we deserve but that's not like him Because he's a God who's gracious and merciful and full of steadfast love. And he is relentless in his pursuit of us. He won't leave his children floundering at a dead end. He will intervene with grace and mercy. Verse 3 again. When I kept silent, what happened? My bones wasted away. I was groaning all day long. Huge negative impacts on his life, physically, emotionally. We saw a lot of these last week in Psalm 6. So I won't rehash all of that, but what I do want you to notice is this phrase in verse 4. He sees, he's taking account of all these things he's experiencing And he realizes where they're coming from. He says, Your hand was heavy upon me. When we pursue a dead end in dealing with the obstacle of our sin, in His great grace and mercy, God will make us miserable, He will dry up our strength. Does that sound mean? Right? The, the temptation here is to think God cruel for this. Oh, that we would have eyes to see His grace and His mercy in this. We talked about it a little last week, the Lord's discipline, right? How discipline proves that we belong to Him. It proves that we're daughters and sons. And it's the same thing here. He makes us miserable. His hand is heavy upon us so that we won't stay there. He makes us miserable as a means of dragging us out of that dead end and guiding us to the proper path. Next point on your outline. Verse 5. Here's the proper path. I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed it. Now look at that word acknowledged, and in the middle of it you see the word know. And that's literally what we're dealing with here, is this verb to know. And if you've read much, especially in the Old Testament, you know that that verb know can have a very intimate connotation. In Genesis we read about uh, Adam knew his wife, and the result was that she conceived and bore a son. You need to let this inform your pattern and your practice of confession and acknowledging sin. Confession needs to be specific. It needs to be detailed rather than general. So if your pattern of prayer Includes somewhat of a blanket clause. Oh Lord, forgive me my many sins. Can I challenge you this morning? That's not acknowledging your sin to the Father, that's not literally knowing your sin to the Father. to know your sin to God, to acknowledge it to Him, is to name it, is to be specific about it. Father, I have gossiped about someone to make myself look good. Father, I have coveted my neighbor's new boat. Father, I have doubted Your goodness when this unexpected expense popped up this month. Father, I have sought pleasure in looking at pornography. Father, I have allowed recreation to crowd out my worship of you. We will get more specific about being specific next week when we look at Psalm 51. But as far as today's concerned, as you think about the proper path toward happiness, the proper path of confession, start with being specific name it call it what it is this is the first step down this proper path toward remind you where does this path lead joy gladness happiness blessedness now when we specifically know our sins to the father when we acknowledge when we confess them what is the result look again at verse 5 you forgave You forgave. And we can go back to verse 1 and see this other beautiful result of, of acknowledging and confessing is that the sin is now covered. Right? Here's what we've been longing for a remedy to our being exposed comes from the fact that our Savior was exposed, He hung naked on a cross. Bearing the punishment for our sins. See, we got to remember, we don't receive forgiveness of sins because God just decided out of the generosity and the kindness of his heart to say, eh, I guess it's not that big of a deal. Let's just let bygones be bygones. No. We receive forgiveness of sins only because the sins were actually paid for. Punishment was made. Our debt was transferred to Christ and He paid it. So our sin does, in fact, get covered. Not by anything we try to do, but by the precious blood of our Savior. Friends, that is foundational to your happiness. Is the sorrow of another. We're forgiven. Our sin is covered. And our sinfulness, verse 2, our iniquity isn't counted against us. See, every single transgression every single act, thought, moment of rebellion appears as a debt on God's ledger sheet that he keeps. They count against you. They condemn you until the payment that Jesus made is applied to your account and your debt and my debt is wiped out and and there's an and right the second half of this that sometimes we neglect his very righteousness is counted toward us right so our iniquity not counted toward us his righteousness from perfectly fulfilling every aspect of the law as he lived on this earth is counted for us It ought to blow your mind. Our sin in exchange for His righteousness. In verse 7, the psalmist expounds a little on what, what this covering means. What it, what it looks like, what it feels like. What is the experience of having our sin covered? No longer exposed, right? He, he's our hiding place. We can take refuge satan's accusations, his condemnation we can take refuge we're're we're, we're covered we're, we're preserved we're we 're surrounded with the righteousness of Christ. Uh, two more things quickly, this warning that comes verse six so the happiness that the psalmist experiences with confessed and forgiven sin turns his focus outward. Now, that deserves a whole nother point all by itself, right? I'm not going to give it one, but this isn't just about me, myself, and I. This isn't just about, ooh, I need a right relationship with Jesus. I need to be forgiven and be okay. There's a point to that. And it's your ministry. It's your, it's your overflow and your outflow. And we'll see it again next week in Psalm 51. The Psalm is focused, is, is turned outward. It's on others. And he gives them a warning. He says the time for confession is now. It's an important theme in Scripture prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, right? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Because see, there's two things that we're, that we're not guaranteed of. And it makes putting off the confession of sins very foolish. First thing we're not guaranteed of is that there will be a later. If you say, eh, I will get to that. It sounds very important. I will consider it and I will get to that at some point. Well, guess what? You're not guaranteed some point down the road. And even if there is some point down the road, the other thing that you're not guaranteed of is that you'll have a soft heart at that point. Yeah, you may end up with 30 more years to put it off. But you're not guaranteed that 10, 20, 30 years, 30 days from now that your heart will be soft and will turn to the Lord then anyway. See, the Lord will reach out. He will reach out time and time again. He will seek to make you miserable in your dead ends. He is long-suffering. He is oh so patient with us. But Scripture is also clear of something else. There comes a point of no return. There comes a point when he stops reaching out to you. When he leaves you in the hardness of your heart. And that hardness then only gets harder and harder and harder. So if you sense your misery today, if you sense the Lord's heavy hand upon you today, then cry out to him today. Lastly, what's better than a little happiness? A whole lot of happiness. Increasing in happiness. Look at verses 8 and 9. So the, the speaker shifts here. Right? Did you notice that? This, this is the Lord that's now speaking, not the psalmist. Right? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule, uh, so on. So Lord's speaking here. He's giving this instruction. And I want to backtrack just a second to remind you that the principle is true. More obedience and less disobedience will lead to an increase in your happiness. But I strongly contend that that increasing obedience and decreasing disobedience is the result of something happening inside of you and not something that you pursue with your own efforts. It's not from our own striving and straining to obey more and disobey less. Verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you, God says. Now, question, have we seen anywhere in Scripture in our time together where God sort of fleshes out how that works. How does he go about instructing us and teaching us? Let me remind you of two places that we've been multiple times. Important places. Underline them, highlight them if you haven't already. Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Second thing, Ezekiel 36. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. Okay. Verse 9 of our psalm today mentions the bit and the bridle, right? External measures used to. Obtain the desired behavior. This is where you're going to go. This is where you're not going to go. That horse, that mule, it's not going to the right place because it loves the owner. It's being externally coerced. Not so with you and me. We get new hearts. New hearts that have new desires and want-tos. New, de- new hearts that now love because we've been unconditionally loved in the gospel. He's written His law. Again, this law that's designed for our good and for our flourishing. We can see that now. He's given us His Spirit that will fuel our obedience. See, that's how we find more obedience and less disobedience. That's the thing that our hearts most want now. That's, That's the earnest desire of this new heart inside of me. More obedience less disobedience, and therefore more happiness. Increasing happiness. Right? Not by working our fingers to the bone for it, but by confessing our failures. Realizing the great depth of love the Father has for us in Christ and experiencing the transforming power of that love. Changing us from the inside out. That, my friends, is the secret to happiness let's pray my father repentance and confession those words often leave bad taste in our mouths we don't realize the joy that awaits on the other side but you do and so, Father, thank You for grace and mercy where You will make us miserable if we're not being honest with You about our sin. Your hand will be heavy upon us if we're just trying to blame shift or if we're just trying to work our way out of it. Lord, thank You for grace that is sometimes painful when it needs to be. Father, I pray that those that are here this morning would respond to Your grace. I pray that they would feel Your heavy hand pressing down upon them. And it would make them miserable. It would make them flee to You and to the cross of Christ to acknowledge their sin, to know it before You, to confess it, and to experience the glorious forgiveness, to experience and be reminded of the gracious covering available for our sin in the blood of Christ. Oh, Father, come and do this work of Your grace this morning, we pray, in Christ's name and for His sake.